0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. St. Ann's Retreat, located in Logan Canyon, is well known to Cache Valley residents due to the folklore of the place, tales of demonic nuns, evil witches, murdered babies, and more. Often referred to as the nunnery, the site is a hub for thrill-seekers who trespass onto the property to see for themselves if the stories are true. In a podcast created for Professor Matthew LaPlante's radio production and podcasting class, USU students Claire Scott and Reagan Edelman take a look into the history and folklore of St. Anne's to determine what started these haunting tales and how they've shaped the property today. And today on the program, we're going to hear this entire podcast. Claire Scott is a freshman at Utah State University majoring in journalism with an emphasis in broadcasting. Reagan Edelman is a freshman at Utah State University, currently a double major in art history and journalism and communication with an emphasis in public relations.
1: St. Anne's Retreat is a series of cabins tucked away up Logan Canyon in Cache Valley, Utah. The location has become the home of a lot of legends and mysteries for Cache Valley residents.
2: Most of the stories have to do with people wondering what was going on up there. Why would the Catholic nuns be up there? And then the stories of the pregnant nuns, the babies dying and drowning the babies in the pool, the baby floating, Mother Superior throwing the, the nun in the pool or chasing them through the woods. And that's what all these stories are.
1: My name is Reagan. My name is Claire. And in this podcast, we're going to tell you the stories of St. Anne's retreat. So when did you first hear about St. Anne's? Uh, I don't think I heard anything about this place until my freshman year of college, which was just this past year, which was so weird because I have been around Cache Valley. My family's lived here for my entire life, so you'd think I would have heard something beforehand, but no. That's crazy to me because I'm not even from Cache Valley and, like, I don't even have family here, but the first time I heard about it was years ago. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I was 12, honestly. Like, it was a long time ago. Because I was on my way to this girl's camp and a leader had been hyping it up so much. The whole drive. <laughs> must have been an hour. Oh, wow. She was telling us these stories about St. Anne's. And, like, she had been there. And she showed us this picture that she took where you could see the silhouette of a nun in, like, the top floor window. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I took this and it, it, was, said it She said she took it her herself. Yes. And, and, like, obviously it must have been Photoshop, but at the time i was like oh my gosh <laughs> like that's crazy and so like like when we drove past it was just extra freaky because like i had seen that picture she had told all those stories yeah so it was like it was best camp story i ever heard
3: like i love ghost stories even if they're fake I, I i love all ghost stories but it's a pet peeve of mine when someone's like this is a true ghost story and it's just completely not true this is jennifer jones i'm a writer and researcher Uh, I have a blog called thedeadhistory.com, and I like to research the history behind urban legends and haunted locations.
1: We learned about Jennifer while looking through some of the online articles that we could find about St. Anne's, and we happened upon her blog post about the nunnery.
3: When I quit actually ghost hunting because it was just too much drama, uh, I decided that I would just like research the history behind places, and because I'm a nerd, um, I use actual like historic record and things like that and so if you're going to have this urban legend about someone that was once you know alive a real person then in order to like be respectful you need to tell the true story so um, that's kind of how the dead history started.
1: Jennifer isn't the only one fascinated by the stories of St. Anne's.
2: I would had enough students and was real good friends with the folklorists that taught and collected these things and so I knew some of the stories, but it did really make you think there's something in I mean, about, you know, not necessarily ghosts, but, but everything is kind of amplified. The noises, the wind, the sounds.
1: This is Ross Peterson, a professor at Utah State University. He's the voice you heard at the beginning of the podcast.
2: I've taught here at Utah State off and on since 1971.
1: There's a lot of folklore and mystery revolving around the place, especially if you ask the locals. Mm -hmm. And the folklore even kind of is a history to a lot of them. Like, they believe it to be true. Um, But in reality, the history of St. Anne's is very natural. It's it's not very dramatic at all. It's just normal. The history begins when St. Anne's was built by a guy named Hatch. Boyd Hatch. He's He's the the guy
2: who, with one of his partners, and they lived in the East, did build that.
1: St. Ann's was just built as a summer home for the Hatch family who lived in New York. And they were part of this really wealthy, rich community. So they had a lot of parties, a lot of friends over to stay with them. Um, I think the most well-known one we found was actually Marilyn Monroe, which Mm -hmm. is pretty cool. Um, But the place goes by a lot of names. It's Hatch's Camp, Forest Hills, Pine Glen Cover, but more often than not, it's known as The Nunnery. But it was never actually a nunnery. No, it was bought in the 50s by the Catholic Church. And so naturally, there were a lot of nuns and priests going through it. And they'd sometimes use it as a retreat for themselves. But in the summer, it was a camp for disadvantaged kids. So never a nunnery. But with the Catholic Association, mm-hmm. you know, it just kind of automatically became known as known as that to the residents. If you've ever been to the nunnery, you're immediately struck by the beauty of the place. It's in the middle of Logan Canyon. So it's reclusive. It's beautiful. There's trees, a river... I guess you don't really think, wow, this place is haunted. So it's Mm -hmm. interesting that people would be so quick to create these hauntings. Yeah, especially since it was like a high-end place. Mm -hmm. It was nice. It was a getaway. It was like a vacation home of sorts. Looking at it now, though, you'd never guess that it was a relaxing place. It looks desolate. It looks haunted. Mm -hmm. It was already starting to fall apart when Ross Peterson went up there, shortly after the Catholic Church stopped using it. So you said you went up there yourself one
2: time? Yeah. How, what was no, I've like? been up there. It's, it's, it. I mean, I just thought it was a weird place for us to have a meeting, but, but it was before it really was run down. Mm-hmm. But you know, just to see it, it was, it was. I think starting to go into some degree of, of disrepair. This would have been in the '70s, where we had a dinner and a, you know, just, just a meeting in there what used to be kind of their church building.
1: Once it stopped being used, it falls into the classic abandoned building trope. Yeah, because those abandoned things are mysterious and people are just scared of the things they don't know and understand. Ross Peterson actually referenced To Kill a Mockingbird when he was talking about this and kind of talked about the idea of Boo Radley in relation to
2: St. Anne's. You remember in To Kill a Mockingbird, it is, you know, the, the, just the mysteriousness about Boo Radley.
1: No one really knew anything about Boo Radley because he never left his house, but there were these stories that adults and kids made up about him. See, he lives over there. Boo only comes out at night when you're asleep and it's pitch dark. When you wake up at night, you can hear him.
2: You know, just what it was like to just remember the time that Jim or Jeb ran up, you know, just to be on the porch and then run back. That's kind of what the mentality is when people, it's just, you know, just to say you've done it. He's
1: about six and a half feet tall. He eats raw squirrels and all the cats he can catch. There's a long jagged scar that runs all the way across his face. His teeth are yellow and rotten. His eyes are popped. And he drools most of the time. Oh, I don't believe you. But the thing is Boo Radley is not scary. He kind of ends up being the hero of the book, doesn't he? In the end, yes, but since the kids don't know him, since he doesn't leave the house and there's those rumors, he's scary to them. Okay. And the more nobody disputes the rumors, the more real they become. The same probably goes for St. Anne's.
3: I think that place specifically is more like it has the creepy aesthetic, you know, like it, it checks all the boxes It's out in the woods. It's these cabins that... Are deserted and kind of falling apart and and then you have these stories about it so all of that combined it just puts off its own vibe it,
2: it is creepy because it's uh it's run down in the back of your mind are the stories and then you just you know now unless you go there with an owner you're not supposed to be there and then of course in the canyon the darkness is so intense I mean, you don't have any of the lights from a community, uh, pretty isolated from the road. So so it is, yeah, it's a pretty intense place.
1: I've been up the canyon, and he's right. The darkness is so intense. It feels heavy almost. Yeah, so I tried to car camp in that canyon pretty recently, actually. Um, I thought the darkness would help me sleep, because there's these lights on our street that would shine through the window. It yeah. drove me nuts. So I left and was like, I'll just go sleep up the canyon. And... It's overwhelming how dark it gets. It's to the point where it felt unreasonable. I know I shouldn't be able to be, like, dark, unreasonable. Like, (laughs) it felt unreasonable. And I was nowhere close to St. Anne's or any urban legends. Like, I had never heard of anything. This was before I started researching St. Anne's. So, like, this wasn't in my brain. But... I was already making up these stories in my head. Like, I was sure I was going to get killed, or that something supernatural and scary was out there. Like, I kept peering out the window and being like, (laughs) (laughs) But it was literally just that darkness making all of it happen. So basically, you're scared of the dark. (laughs) Okay, okay. Kind of. But here's the deal. Anyone should be scared of the dark when it's that dark. My point is that I can almost understand how so many obscure, scary stories got started. The site is well known for being a hub for legend tripping, and a ridiculous amount of high school and college students want to know if the rumors are true, so they go there all the time. Legend tripping, for those of you who haven't heard the term before, is when you go to a site of a legend yourself to see if the stories are true. And this can actually be a pretty big risk as there's trespassing fines and potential for prosecution. Yeah, it's crazy. But the thing is, they're kids who have heard a scary mystery story about some killer spirits (laughs) that are in the woods. Like, they basically have to check it out. The consequences are just these minor details to them because, like, they haven't... Gotten the consequences yet? You know, until they're real. Yeah, but they're not real until they're real. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. That's just a, that's an afterthought for them. What started the legend tripping there?
3: I don't know. Um, some people say that you know there was this horrific murder that took place um, that a priest killed a nun and and buried her baby or buried her uh, by the the pool or things like that. Um, I think it's just kind of one of those things like you go out there, it looks really creepy. So let's make a story to to match how it looks. And then once that happens and it takes off, it just it gets a life of its own.
1: So the stories most likely evolved from murder to murderous nuns. Most likely, because I'm not really sure how the nuns would have come into play until the Catholic Church took ownership. What's cool is that for the sake of this legend tripping, kids have gone and escaped the place with the wildest stories. They're crazy. Yes, and insane. there's the Folklore Archives underneath the USU library, and they have a whole section just on St. Anne's. There isn't only stories. There's a ton of information down there. Like, ridiculous amounts. It's hard to figure out where to even begin to look. So, naturally, we approached folklorist Lisa Gabbert to help us better understand what exactly we were even looking at.
4: Uh, well, my name is uh, Dr. Lisa Gabbert, and I am a uh, professor of folklore here at Utah State University. Um, I have been here since 2004.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about what folklore is, and more specifically, like, why it's important?
4: Well, that's a big question, <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, there are lots of lots of definitions of folklore. Um, the, one of the most common definitions is artistic communication in small groups, and I still use that one a lot. Oftentimes people think of folklore as being kind of like old stories, which is certainly, definitely, a, you know, an important part of folklore, but really uh, folklore is the study of the way that people communicate either person to person or face to face. Oftentimes in, it used to be kind of in small face to face groups and now with social media, we've expanded that too kind of online groups and and digital interactions and and things like that.
1: Basically, there's a lot more to folklore than just the supernatural aspects, which is often what comes to mind very first. Yeah, it can branch out from these ghost stories to fairy tales and even to memes. One of the only rules, I guess you could say, is that it exists in variation. There are multiple versions of it out circulating. So if you think of Cinderella, there's all those retellings that have the same overarching story of like a girl. Rags to riches. Yes, I think. she like meets this prince, everything's great, and they're happy, but the slightest variations here and there. Obviously, the best variation being the Hillary Duff version, Don't At Me you will find no argument for me. I completely agree. (laughs) I I was worried, I was worried we were gonna have a fight. Well, the same goes for ghost stories and memes and all of that.
4: If you have a meme that's the same kind of meme cycle over and over again, but slightly different, Um, that's a really key marker of folklore because as it um, travels from person to person, everybody puts their own imprint on it, they change it a little bit, they forget something um, or they change it depending on the context.
1: We saw a lot of these little changes as we went down the rabbit hole of personal St. Anne narratives that we found at the archives. There's a broad collection of stories told by students and Cache Valley residents who either went to St. Anne's and experienced something or heard about it through someone else. We came across a few recurring characters behind most of the folklore you can find about the nunnery. The most popular story by far is the story of the pregnant nun and mm-hmm. her baby. That's the one that we always hear about from friends so and stuff. Many, like, yeah. if the nunnery's brought up, it's like, oh, place with them nun and her, and her baby. Arms, yep. Yeah, and so one story actually takes it a step further by saying that the kid was the spawn of Satan, of or course. even that Saint Anne was a sort of—I I like this one—that Saint Anne was a sort of pseudonym for Satan. Get it? Because like Saint Anne, <gasps> Satan, Satan, Saint Saint Anne. Yeah, I did not even <laughs> yeah. think of that. So this is an archive written by Chalice Peterson in the early nineties.
5: One 15-year-old refused to sign her baby up for adoption. She decided that if she couldn't have it, no one could, and so she flung it off the roof of the housing quarters. The sisters couldn't clean up the mess no matter what they tried. They ended up bricking up the baby's body and declaring it the spawn of Satan. You can still hear it crying if you venture towards the brick wall.
1: There's also stories about similar babies being drowned by the nuns, resulting in spirits that will pull you into the empty pool if you get too close. Yeah, and one report even says that you can see the babies floating face down in the pool, and it's supposedly their punishment for being, quote unquote, born in sin. But I mean, they're stuck there in limbo, floating in the water, face Sorry down. about it. That's tough. <laughs> <laughs> Better luck next, Live Man. Oh no. I'm so sorry. Along with the devil babies, there's demon dogs. So there's a two-headed one, but also a pack of wolves that pulls the devil's wife's carriage. This story is one of Tanya's experiences in the spring of 1989.
5: My friends and I decided to go to St. Anne's. We heard dogs barking in the distance the whole time, but it kept getting closer and closer. We were standing by the fence and it was moving as though there were dogs jumping against it. It freaked us out, so we ran back to the car But we couldn't get it started. Eventually we did, and we heard this awful scratching noise. When we got home, there were scratches on the car that hadn't been there before.
1: A nun named Hecata supposedly owns two dogs who won't hesitate to harm people who come too close to the nunnery. But, you know, don't worry too much because they can't cross the river for some reason. Naturally, it's not like there's a bridge or anything. Yeah, no bridge, no way. Why would there be? I think my personal favorite story, though, <laughs> is the one of the nuns that went crazy and they ate the kids. That can't be real. Okay, I wrote it down because I was like, where did this yeah, come no. from? So it was written in 1993 by a girl named Stephanie. And Stephanie, let's just say she had like a good imagination because <laughs> um, it's kind of long. Like it's a couple pages. Wow. But basically the nuns and the kids were like stranded up there in St. Anne's because I think they got snowed in. And at the end of this, like, retelling, it says, this is a quote. It's believed that the nuns, out of desperation, ate the children and then went mad themselves. They killed each other and themselves. And so the spirits of those angry nuns are the spirits that you see up there. So in in this variation, the babies weren't drowned, just eaten. That's literally so much <laughs> worse And why would they even eat the babies If they were just gonna kill themselves well, They didn't know that. they were gonna kill themselves They were hungry man that Babies started awful. to look like a floating piece of meat Oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> Okay but at least it's the nuns who ate them That are trapped in the limbo Instead of some helpless baby ghost Floating face down I in a guess. pool Like at least it's the adults Makes more sense to me S- Sits better This isn't my favorite one, but I do feel like I have to mention the white nun. So, there's this girl named Michelle in 1994. In this variation, St. Anne killed like 12 kids and then hung herself on a flagpole. Where'd she even find 12 kids? Were they babies? I, maybe they're babies. I really that makes don't know. sense. But when I think of kids, I kids. imagine like 12 year olds and just. I agree. Yep. Jeez. Well, she hung herself on the flagpole and she's supposedly this reincarnation of St. Anne. Okay. She wears this wimple, which is basically just a stereotypical nun garb mm-hmm. and, The cloak and the. Yes. And she has this white cloth pulled over her face so you can't see any defining Gross! features. Yeah. It's pretty freaky. But the worst part is, if you see her as you're leaving the canyon, you're going to die within the year. No reports of death to be found, but that's what they say. I really don't like that one. It's kind of funny, too, because there's, like, all these stories about Satan and Mm -hmm. nuns killing kids. (laughs) And for some reason, like, it's the cloth over the face for me. That scares me more. I mean, some of these stories are far-fetched, like nuns eating babies (laughs) and killing other babies, lots of killing, lots of murder, but it really makes you wonder how these things could even be thought up, like some imagination on these people. I mean, there are people who have been genuinely horrified by their experiences up there. I think one of the best examples of that genuine fear is James Mulligan's experience from 1991.
6: So my friend and I used to be kind of into satanic stuff, and he said that there was this lady that lived in Logan Canyon like supposedly Satan's wife, and her name was Hecada. He said if you say her name three times, terrible things would happen. Then he made sure to do it. So right after he said her name the third time, rocks started falling down the mountain. And not just little rocks. uh Uh-huh. They were big boulders. Later on during that trip, he told someone else the superstition, and just after that, one of the boys almost fell off the cliff. It's true. I was there. So when I try to tell people about it, they just laugh. Start saying, hekata, hekata. But well, I don't dare finish it. Because I'm convinced that there may be a strange power in Logan Canyon. And
4: I don't want to mess with it. Well, St. Anne definitely has generated a lot of, you know... Um... I mean, there's you know, versions on versions on versions, right? Cause this is how folklore goes, you know, and, and some of them are like the nuns were pregnant and they were having abortions up there or they were drowning them in the, in the swimming pool and, you know, all this kind of stuff. A lot of those stories are, are actually, you know they didn't originate in Logan at all. They are actually quite ancient and you can go back to um, at least the middle ages and trace some of those versions of those stories.
1: There's too many specific stories to go into each of them in depth, but a majority of these stories have themes from centuries ago, and they were applied specifically to the Catholic Church by Cache Valley residents sharing these stories to the point where they became real folklore. Well, what do you think it was about the Catholic Church that generated all those rumors? Lisa said that it came down to a mixture of ignorance and religious difference.
4: Really, the dynamic of of St. Anne's and the the genesis of the stories is um, kind of religious difference you know, the Cache Valley is obviously largely LDS and certainly in the fifties it was, you know, pretty homogeneous at that time. And, um, the 1950s for the Catholic church was pre-Vatican II, which means that the Catholic church also was a very closed organization. Um, the masses were in Latin, for example. Um, so it was very mysterious to uh, people who were not Catholics. And I think, um, you know, the status of Logan and the LDS church in the, in the 50s and the status of the Catholic church in the 50s, both being kind of closed organizations, generated a lot of mystery in some ways. And so to have um, nuns come up uh, and retreat in, in an area that was isolated as Logan was at that time really generated kind of curiosity and, you know, maybe some fear and apprehension on the part of local people.
1: There's a lot of stories that go way back and revolve around the Catholic tradition, and more specifically, nuns. Yeah, it really revolves around the notion of celibacy. So the nuns weren't supposed to be having sex, they had to live their whole lives unwed, that kind of thing. Yeah, so the idea of a nun becoming pregnant, it was... It was scandalous. I mean, St. Anne's is isolated, like we mentioned previously, so it's just very out of the way. It's a good place to plant these stories. Since the nuns are supposed to be celibate, if they were pregnant, it could be kind of a mark of shame for them, so you would want to hide them away. They also wear that dress that's just designed to hide the body. Like, that's its whole function. Mm -hmm. But this, this also, like, risks sparking these rumors, because what if they're not just hiding the body, but a pregnant belly, too? I mean, it just makes people wonder, what's under there? The presence of all these nuns, especially in a community that isn't familiar with the Catholic Church, re-sparked these ideas and mysteries and kind of caused a commotion. People wanted to know, what were they doing up there? Were they hiding? Were they having sex? (laughs) (laughs) No, exactly. It reanimated those ancient stories and ideas, Mm -hmm. and people really clung to them. Especially since it's Cache Valley, where, you know, not a lot really happens. Not a lot. (laughs)
4: If you're a bored teenager, right, and you hear stories about nuns having sex or having babies, and maybe there's something demonic going on up there, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to go check it out. I think, you know, probably the stories began in the 50s. I can't, I couldn't tell quite exactly when the legend tripping started, but I think it wasn't too right. long after that, you know, that the teenagers from Cache Valley... Basically started their own tradition, their own kind of folklore and started visiting the place to see if those stories were,
2: were true. It's you know, some something people don't do it in the daytime. Okay.
1: This is Ross Peterson and, again.
2: But the local high school kids do here. It's just something that but you you've read about what happened when the new owners had guards up there yeah. and caught the yeah. high school kids. I actually kid. talked
1: to one of the kids that was oh, there. Oh, did
2: night. you? Yeah. So so you know those things get a life of their own mm-hmm. and probably would and as long as as long as there's a mystery around it and it's not open access to everybody and but I, even myself I, I would never want to stay up there right you know yeah. why would you you know I'm that far from home but anyway uh, but a lot of the kids dare each other you know to see if how long they can stay and and then, but, but after those guards, and then they tried the guards, you know, and all that court case and stuff like that, uh, it was, not very many kids went up there for a while. But it's reinvigorated now for, to visit it.
1: Yeah. Do you think the, the situation with the kids would be even more reason to go up now, now that people know you no, there's not really guards up there anymore. They
0: just kind of want to check it out for that yeah. reason. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today on the program, we're presenting a podcast, which was created by USU students Claire Scott and Reagan Edelman, taking a look into the history and folklore of St. Anne's Retreat, located in Logan Canyon. And we're hearing the entire podcast on the program today. Hope you're enjoying this. We'll have a break and come back with part two of this podcast, which was created for USU professor Matthew LaPlante's radio production and podcasting class.
7: UPR is supported by Utah State University MBA, offering opportunities to achieve new goals and further careers in the new year. The fall semester application deadline is June 15th. Information can be found at HuntsmanMBA.com.
6: All it takes is a few sunny, warm days and every gardener feels that need to plant. Sometimes that desire overrides our better judgment and we plant tender seedlings before the danger of frost has passed. Don't worry, you can fulfill that inner need and still protect tender young transplants. Just be aware of the limits of each of these methods. Hot caps and frost blankets provide about 2 to 3 degrees of added protection, so instead of freezing at 32, they are good down to about 30 degrees. Transparent, hard plastic plant protectors give even more cold temperature defense at about 4 to 6 degrees below freezing. The ultimate shields against cold use a water barrier between layers of hard or flexible plastic that protect plants into the low 20s.
4: Support for the Garden Spot comes from Anderson Seed & Garden, offering spring decor, garden supplies, and landscaping ideas. Located at 69 West Center Street in Logan. Information at andersonseedandgarden.com and on Facebook.
0: You're listening to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. On the program today, we're hearing a podcast which takes a look at the history and folklore of St. Anne's Retreat, which is located up Logan Canyon. This podcast was created by USU students Claire Scott and Reagan Edelman. And here's the concluding part two from the podcast.
1: In October of 1997, some kind of strange, supposedly supernatural, or maybe very real event took place. We actually talked to one of the kids that was there that night, so we'll get into that. But before we go into details, we have to mention the ghost, the Ghost Adventures episode. Don't get me started on like the Ghost we Adventures not episode. not mention it. It Jeez. is really important, I think, one, to just talk about how these... Stories have become such a big deal that we are having people, you know, come here and investigate. Like, people on TV. Yeah. Like, like it's a whole 45-minute episode about ghost adventures. But also... I'm sure Ghost Adventure. this episode just re-sparked the oh my interest, gosh. the and people coming so in. And it's so exaggerated, and so, like, it's, to us, It's it was obvious yes. that it was, if like... If you know anything about St. Anne's before watching this episode... You know that a majority of it is crap. It's made But up. it was pretty, like, even me, I'm not proud to admit this, but there'd be times I'd show things and I'd be like, oh my gosh. Yeah. And then Claire would be like, Reagan. This is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So if you don't know about Ghost Adventures, it's this TV show that's on the Travel Channel. Mm-hmm. It's on Hulu. If, if you want to watch yeah, it, yeah, if you're interested. Um, but it's just this paranormal investigator Zach Baggins. Mm-hmm. and he is so funny. Yeah. But him and his crew. Yeah, he has this crew, and they go to various haunted locations mm-hmm. to try to try and prove that they're haunted. One of the parts of this episode that kind of stuck out to me, and probably Reagan too, was. They brought this psychic (laughs) with them. She was so sweet. She was so old, but... She
7: was not sweet. She was a scary lady. She was pretty scary. She was
1: freaky. I mean, she just had a lot of moments. Right, the first thing you even see of her, she's walking up and she has to like pause. She has to hold on to the people next to her. And she's she's almost almost falling down. She's like, two, four, three, four, three, 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 And they're like, (laughs) what does three mean? She's like, there's three bodies here. There's literally three people around her, though. Like, I want to point that out, too. Well, it's just a running theme on this one is they have a few things that they want to bring up and want to, like, emphasize to the audience. The first thing is the number three. There's three murders here. There's three entities here that were murdered. So that one pops up a lot. And this guy, he goes into cabin number three, and he's stuck there all night. He has a really hard time. Nothing definitive there's actually this part where he hears this (laughs) big bane and then zach comes on the voiceover and he's like the entity is what does he say the entity is the entity is like taunting him by doing it off camera
2: All of a sudden, Jay hears footsteps coming from inside the cabin with him. Then, as he reacts, it's as
6: if this spirit starts tormenting him by aggressively moving something that is out
2: of view of the camera.
1: What about when when the psychic, he's like, so what, why are you? Like, what are the spirits? Like, are they here? And she goes, what is it to kill, sweetie? Yeah. What is it? The way she, the way she says it, and like it's almost, it's almost like it's obviously staged. Steal souls, sweetie. <laughs> yeah, steal souls, sweetie. Oh,
2: what would this evil presence want the living to do? Grab souls, sweetie. To kill.
1: Yes. The reason we bring this up is because it talks about that hostage situation yes. that took place in 1997. This was a big draw for them. Yeah. They tried to pose it as if the men who were there that night were possessed by a demon to doing that it's so funny because you talk to the people who were actually there and their story is completely different than the two people the guys had on the show
7: like they tell stories
1: they they do this reenactment where it shows the guy and he has these red glowing eyes and he's like possessed possessed by a demon and he's dragging people around and hog tying them yeah and like it's it's so intense. He shoots someone in the head. Yeah, like, I that. Like, that was just that. randomly in there. It's so interesting to me because I guess maybe we want something like that to be true. Like, what else would possess these men to do what they did? But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's roll it back. What happened that night? Well, basically, you have this guy named Josh Weiser. He was there that night. He was there with a lot of his friends. They were... Going up to the cabin with their dates,
6: and we um, we decided to make it scarier for our dates. We decided to have one of my friend's older brother and his group of friends to go up there prior to us arriving, and we were going to have them make scary sounds and try to like scare our dates
1: they went up there to scare these girls. They planted stories before they got there. They'd sent these kids up ahead to like make noises mm-hmm. and be freaky. And so when they're going up there and all of a sudden these guys pop out with like a gun. A few of them are like, "Oh, is this just like is this part, part of, of the, the joke?" Yeah. Cuz a lot of them don't know what's going on, so they kind of are confused but also a little bit scared
6: all of a sudden these three guys jumped out of the bushes and they had guns with flashlights taped around their barrels. And they kind of started screaming at us and telling us to get on the ground. It was dark. We didn't really know what was going on. We just thought it was those guys that we'd sent out prior to us arriving to scare us. So we so we didn't get on the ground. We were kind of talking back to them and we just thought it was those guys. And as we kept walking, one of the one of the guys who were later deemed to be guards of the property came up and hit my friend on the back of the head with, I, I'm still a little foggy as to what that was. I don't know if it was like a little billy club or if it was the butt of his gun. I don't know. But it hit him in the back of the head and it knocked my friend out. Like he fell onto the ground. And that's when we knew it was like serious at that point.
1: And so these guards led them up the hill to the pool, and they put mm-hmm. them all in the pool. I they, hate that it's the pool because that's like the where all those pretty. Yes, I bet they. I bet they were kind of spooked. But no, that. I'm sure that was a a, a reasoning, Behind especially it. after telling all those stories beforehand. Beforehand, to psych and the now ladies these guys up. are yeah. putting you in there.
6: They made a snail on the ground, and then they put this like rope wire that had like copper, copper in it, and they roped tied it around our necks, and they move. It would blow our our heads off, and it was attached to a bomb.
1: Oh my gosh. Yes, so the kids are freaking out. Like, they can't move. They can't do anything. There was, like, 30 kids there that night, but they each came at, like, different times, so there's constantly just new kids being put in the pool, and, like, there's just nothing they can do.
6: Finally, after a little while, the older guy that was kind of in charge finally went down the canyon and called the cops, and the cops came up and So they released us and gave us uh, trespassing tickets. Yeah, so we kind of went back down the canyon, and then there was other things that happened after that as far as legal ramifications.
1: Obviously, the parents and the kids wouldn't allow them to get fined after after that. Yeah, so like it was brought to court. Yeah, all of the guys pled guilty. There, I don't. The fines were lifted. Yeah, the kids were fined. But the interesting thing about this hostage situation is that if you hadn't heard about St. Anne's before, you definitely heard about once the kids were let go. The place was already subject to all sorts of trespassing and stories, but after this, it was just kind of reawakened, mm-hmm. and kids went up there with a new type of curiosity. It just invigorated the whole thing. The kids went back to school, and bam, just rumors were flying. It spread like a wildfire. escalated. Even today, like, we were told about those kids' by our friends when that was the first time i heard about it i was like what these kids were like held hostage like for hours like what were they doing up there like it's still a story that people talk about yeah and it probably became more similar to the ghost adventure episode than like the actual the actual event because of people talking yeah because no one's gonna downplay that especially if it happened to them you know you're gonna Mm. share it with a bang like i was a hostage and i almost got killed and they were (laughs) possessed another thing that came with this story though is the idea of security and like what was going on up there i mean there's cameras now and it's just a big risk to even go up there because they, the they really upped their so game high. security yes. wise which was super unfortunate for us because we had to find a way to get up there mm-hmm. and that's not even to mention the um the discouragement that we received from Lisa Gabbert.
4: It's changed hands a couple of times now, and now the the new property owner is pretty um, uh, adamant that nobody go up there. He's got video cameras up there and hidden cameras, and I think he prosecutes people who you know show up on his video feed and stuff. So I think there's much more of a danger of um, not being assaulted supernaturally but you're just getting in trouble with the law for for going up there
1: so that left us one option and it was to somehow find out who owned this place and then convince them to let us on this property legally legally so we began as you would with a quick google search as any good student would Mm -hmm. oh oh look so the full the first thing that pops up is a news story and it's from 2017, actually. So he's on it for that's a while. That, that's not that old. It's not, but he's like telling people not to visit. So, yeah, Matt She's Nelson. $750 fine. It's under video surveillance, and intruders will Does be posted to the sheriff's office. Oh, no. <laughs> that's insane. Not a good sign. Okay, so doesn't have any contact. Matt Nelson. Matt Nelson. Matt Nelson business Development Manager. LinkedIn. LinkedIn, yeah. Click LinkedIn. Jeez, how many Matt are there? Okay, that would make sense, right? Business developer? Maybe. But that's in Salt Lake area, Uh, so maybe not. I mean, we can still try him, but let's look for a couple others first. Okay, I'll just look at... Yeah, uh, just search on LinkedIn. I before E? I before E, yeah. Oh. Okay. How many? Like, eight from Utah? I guess, should we just start
6: calling them?
7: leave Your
1: message for four three. Okay, so that one's a no go. Go to the next mat and I'll call. We got nothing.
7: Please leave your message Ugh. for please leave your message for please leave your message for please leave your message for. Okay, <laughs> should, should I leave a message? Five, four, seven, Whatever. I'm,
1: gonna, I'm gonna try. And again. look, we didn't give up by any means, but things were not looking great. Please, thank oh, you. Rude. Jeez, okay. No Matt um, Nielsen's answer their phones, I've come to realize. And then, I get a text on my family group chat. Okay, let me read a few of these texts that I got. All right, the first text is from my aunt, Elise. She sends a link to realtor.com and says, Who wants to invest in a nunnery? We want to fix it up and rent out the cabins, check it out. First thought in my mind, haha, what? <laughs> like, since when was the nunnery for sale? And then my grandma comes in, so do we have to save a space for when we rent it out for ghosts? And then Elise says, if they can pay. And then proceeds a conversation about why they want the nunnery, about what they could do with it. And so, you know, I don't get my hopes up, right? And then, March 5th, I get a text from my Aunt Sadie saying, Elise and Isaac have a tour at the nunnery tomorrow at 1. It took a lot of effort, but we were able to get you a spot. And just like that, I was in. Unfortunately, I had to leave Reagan behind, so sorry about that, Reagan. I'm only a little bitter. (laughs) I think it's all the, the tour itself wasn't anything special. I'd went there with some other family members and friends Elise had invited, and we just kind of walked around the property exploring all the cabins. Oh, door. oh
5: good.
1: Oh. Should I knock first? That's nice. Ooh.
5: Oh, yeah, this, this is nice. nice. This sounds oh, nice. Baby. Jackpot! Yeah. This is
1: like... It was snowy, and the ground was extremely icy. So St. Anne's is sort of on... An incline because it's like right by a cliff and so we were slipping and sliding all over the place trying to get to these different cabins at different locations on the hill. It's really icy over here it's by nice. the way. <laughs> all the doors and entrances were boarded up probably to keep oh, people from entering and vandalizing and all of that so we had to crawl through a couple of the windows to walk around on the insides of the cabins. Oh, it's cute. Are you the yeah, go through the back window. I'm coming through here. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Overall, the cabins were just like regular cabins. I mean, they're obviously a lot more run down than anything you would currently stay in, but there is nothing special about them. The only one that actually sparked my interest and was kind of a little bit spooky you could say was the main one and it was probably just because it was the oldest (laughs) i mean you go in and it's the biggest one it's the biggest cabin it's probably the one that you see in all the pictures and the one the most stories and folklore revolve around that's a really cool fireplace
2: that's amazing
6: look at that thing big time very grand.
1: and you walk in and it's just an open room with a with really tall ceilings and a massive fireplace in the center the wood is dark so and all the windows are boarded up so it kind of is gloomy but i feel like if you didn't know anything about this place before going into this cabin you wouldn't think anything other than it's an old building other than that I mean it's a really beautiful property there's a lot of different sizes of cabins there's that big one there's the Hatch's house there's little ones they had like one for the nanny one for the kids to play in and granted this was during the day but I think night has this way of putting us in this mind frame of everything's scary and I'm in danger When, if it was real, if the supernatural aspects were there, they would be there during the day as well. Like, what does night have that day doesn't? It's the same place. It's the same stories. It's the same cabins. Overall, I wasn't really moved in any particular way as far as fear or hesitation goes. It was just a tour of a property. I'm more scared of um, mice than the the nuns. (laughs) <laughs> the same. So, I mean, you've described it pretty well And, like, you've told your stories But I still want to see it for myself You're a skeptic You're a skeptic And so, your opinion is automatically a little bit invalidated okay. <laughs> Just on, the, on the supernatural side of things because I think that there could be something supernatural After I guess after everything we've heard maybe not so much at St. Anne's but like I wouldn't be surprised if there was you know mm-hmm. so I want to see it and I'll be the judge well I'll take you to the property line and we'll see what we starting can do starting to record at least it's not raining anymore oh you can hear the river yeah, that is nice. Okay, so basically- You can actually see a fair amount of the property from the road without trespassing, so that's how I gave Reagan the tour. Basically there's this river that the bridge goes over and you walk up and then you can barely see through the trees. That's the main cabin up there. Do you see the little- Oh yeah. It looks like it's the mountains I mean, It, it does snow look, on the road. It doesn't look terrible on the outside no actually on the outside it looks kind of nice there's this green one over here i wonder if it screams like classic cabin in the woods to me for sure which isn't necessarily scary not, but it well, is daytime <laughs> yeah i mean we wouldn't i was showing reagan some of the photos i got of the inside of the cabins and it started this conversation about our thoughts on saint anne's so this next part is going to be parts of that conversation have, oh that's not the sign i was trying to find a sign they have so many signs around oh look at the gross basement just though. like warning look how nasty that Ugh. is Sweet, wait this is the one i have my story about look at all that that's terrible yeah it's awful that looks that looks this like... was the one with like the really awful smell that's giving me the vibes of in silence of the lambs when they <gasps> go to they go to the basement the basement and she's in that pit yeah that what's his face buffalo bill is keeping so her so honestly name. if i could capture my feelings of that place when it was at its worst, which was in the basements. It was that. It was just like gross in a human way. It looks like something so, bad has happened in there. Not something bad where there would be ghosts. You're right. It's something human right. bad. So basements were definitely the worst part. Um every other place, I mean they were it was kinda like cute almost. You're like you see when you go in it's point. <laughs> you see potential. Yeah. It's not that you see this place it's run down it's never gonna be better. I think with it being on sale again, you're like, oh, this could be something more than what it is. Mm -hmm. It could be, like, you could see, like, kids running around, or people staying the night there, or, like, people telling stories by the fire. Like, like you can see potential, like, it's not this place that's so run down and bogged down Mm -hmm. by these stories about it. It has... There's something like to it. that could make yeah. it nice, but and it should be a nice place. Like it's, it's a beautiful. It's landscape. kind of sad that it, it got so beyond help. Almost. I know. Like that kind of that's kind of a bummer. Like I feel like I wonder if it. I wonder what stories, how they played a role into it not being bought up and fixed. Because honestly, like you're right by a river, you're up in the mountains. It's beautiful. It's like these buildings are really are also beautiful it's an interesting layout yeah like, people should be buying this up i I don't understand it's it's a typical campsite honestly yeah. like there's nothing there's nothing that special okay that's the wrong word there's nothing obscure about yeah. it i guess i truly feel that if there weren't these stories about ghosts and hauntings and murder mm-hmm. and if there wasn't this folklore hanging over this place the cabins would be in their former glory like somebody would have come in they'd be beautiful, fixed, it fixed it up, up and it wouldn't be in the state of disrepair that it's mm-hmm. still in and along with that these stories while they're fun when it comes down to it the association with the catholic church can be problematic and not just problematic but damaging
8: Lisa expressed
1: that there were times that the sisters who were living there felt like they were actually in danger. You know,
4: I think occasionally the, the sisters um, felt a little unsafe, you know, because there's people wandering around the property at night while they were there. One, one of the most interesting things is that um, I believe at some point they got not guard dogs, but just dogs to have on the property to make them feel a little bit more secure when they were there.
1: The idea of ghosts and haunted cabins and these supernatural aspects can be fun, and that's what folklore is supposed to be. It's supposed to be this fun, unifying source for communities, and Cache Valley residents have definitely loved to talk and debate Mm -hmm. about St. Anne's, and to this day, it's getting traction, and it's, it's so well known that it got to the point where the selling of it gained actual news coverage. The ghosts aren't the root of the problem, and neither are the horrific tales of murder. The cause of the problem is the othering involved in the telling of these stories. When we lump the Catholic Church in with these rumors and tales, we're making them the other. And this is the opposite of that unifying effect that folklore is intended to have.
4: It can be a little dangerous to label uh, any group, whether it's a religious group or a group based on gender or ethnicity. Um, I think you see that, you know, with the political situation, for example, where you have two very um, opposing groups who purposely label the other group in some ways as inhuman. And when you start labeling groups of people as inhuman, that sort of um, gives one permission to do inhuman things to them. I, I think that's the lesson I've learned in, in doing this research that you know um, just the fact that there you know the process of folklore does involve labeling this particular group as, as witches. you know nothing came of it and you know is fine, but we just have to be careful. And, and be cognizant of what that can actually lead to because in the middle ages you know and up to through the 18th century it was witches were burned
1: Special thanks to Ross Peterson, Jennifer Jones, Lisa Gabber, and Josh Weiser for letting us interview them for this podcast. Marty Reeder and Sadie West were our archive readers. Thank you for listening to our Tales of St. Anne's Retreat. Hope you enjoyed. Once again, I'm Reagan Edelman, and I'm Claire Scott. Thank you.
0: On Access Utah today, we have heard a podcast. This podcast looked at the history and folklore of St. Anne's Retreat. It was created for Professor Matthew LaPlante's radio production and podcasting class by USU students Claire Scott and Reagan Edelman. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and our thanks to Claire Scott and Reagan Edelman, also to Matthew LaPlante. And our thanks to you for listening today to Access Utah.
8: It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. The Great Saltaire Resort is often remembered for its glory days as a dance hall and amusement park. But it was constantly at war with the harsh, saline environment that gave it its claim to fame. Learn more after this.
3: I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive.
8: Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. In 1893, the LDS Church built the Great Saltaire Pleasure Resort on the shores of Great Salt Lake. This was the start of a long, fraught, and constant battle between the resort and its surrounding environment. With onion-top domes and moorish decorative elements, the original building looked like an eastern mirage in the desert. Its completion took over five million in today's dollars and included a dance hall, bicycle track, and bathing houses. During peak seasons, Up to 500,000 people visited every year in their woolen, modest swimsuits to float in the famous American Dead Sea, where one could never sink due to the water's salinity. With the addition of a roller coaster, a restaurant, and boxing matches, Great Saltaire became known as the Coney Island of the West. But within 10 years, water receded from Saltaire's piers, so much that the owners created a cable line to take visitors to deeper waters for swimming. Thousands of dollars were spent annually on repainting each wooden surface after harsh winters of salt erosion. Then in 1925, a devastating fire put Saltaire out of business for four years, and efforts to rebuild the racetrack in the 1930s were halted as fires and strong winds devastated construction sites and killed two workers. After World War II, Great Saltaire couldn't compete with its freshwater rivals like Lagoon, Salty waters were perceived as strange and grimy, especially after surrounding cities started to dump their sewage into the lake. Its final year as a resort and amusement park was 1957, just before another fire and high winds tore away its structures. Its ruins stood unrepaired for years before burning to the ground in 1970. Today, a concert hall hosting musicians from around the world goes by the name Saltaire. But in a cruel joke from nature, this salt hair was flooded by five feet of water just two years after opening in 1982. It then reopened to the public in 1993, signaling one last attempt to create paradise amongst the brine shrimp. Find sources in past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan
7: Weiss. UPR is supported by our members and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984 covering news, politics, music, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. Utah Public Radio is a statewide member-supported service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, UPR.org, and the UPR app.